We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week. Inflation, more of it. We were supposed to wipe the narrative and turn the page in anticipation of election season in the autumn. But now that all the jiggery-pokery in the world won't part the Red Sea, what happens to all those carefully laid plans? Lloyd Austin didn't tell his boss he was ducking out of work. Work from home culture has made that a reality for many. Unfortunately for Lloyd, he is the Secretary of Defence while America's gunboats bombard Yemen. So who's steering the Pentagon's ship of fools? And finally, news just in that the Solomon Islands no longer recognise Taiwan. Neither does Nicaragua. What can this mean? It means Beijing's been on another spending spree, buying up influence in minor nations. With 17 countries having their diplomatic status upgraded, we analyse the placement of the latest pieces in the global Go game. But first... The price isn't right. So the headline um, this week was actually out of the US on consumer prices. Um, The inflation number came in a little hot at 3.4% in December. Uh, That's up from 3.1% in November. The overall consumer price level has actually got a bit stuck in recent months. It's kind of been coming down, coming down, coming down, and now it's kind of just jiggling just over, you know, 3 to 3.5%. It's actually resulted in some calls by more, I'd say more liberal, but pretty much Biden supporting economists like Paul Krugman now want to raise the inflation target up to 3%. This isn't a huge deal, although, you know, if it gets stuck, um, you know, 1, 1.5% above the Fed target at 2%, it's going to create some problems. And it certainly throws off the Federal Reserve promises to lower interest rates this year which some, myself included, think is political and an attempt to make sure that Joe Biden doesn't lose the election. But all of this kind of pales in comparison to what is happening currently in the Red Sea. The initial effects of the Red Sea blockade are beginning to show up now. We've seen European imports, real-time kind of port data, fall off a cliff. It's, it's, it's fallen, the European imports have fallen substantially. The report on the day of recording is that Tesla, the Tesla factory in Europe, is going to have to shut down because they can't get access to parts. So this all feels very, very like the beginning of the lockdown-related inflation. Most people will probably remember this. It started with kind of, you know, almost murmurings about all this stuff that was going on at sea and obviously the, the disruptions that caused that are substantially different to the disruptions that are causing the problems today. But people probably remember that it began, with, it began with kind of murmurings. Then we got a really nice headline story of the ship being stuck in the Suez Canal. and But we also kind of gradually started to learn about kind of ships sitting off port, unable to be unloaded, and so on. We, we won't get exactly those same dynamics, but we are at that point now, I think, where the murmuring has started Companies are starting to kind of say, oh, we're not going to be able to get enough stuff through the door. And so basically, a macro commentator on Twitter, Andres Steno, put out a chart, a nice chart, that just showed the US goods inflation and the Shanghai to Rotterdam 
freight container rates. And it showed that there's about a five month lag between the container rate going up and the inflation. And so container rates are obviously, they're actually skyrocketing as of today. The data is coming out and they're, they're going up shockingly fast in a way. And so what this tells us is, I would say at a very minimum, we are five months out, probably. I mean, you can never say these things with definite, with a de- definiteness, but I think very, very good probability. We are now at, at, at most five months out from a serious uptick in inflation, which will make the current squabbling over 3.1 versus 3.4 meaningless in a sense. And now we can talk about what that means. It has uh, a lot of implications, a lot of ramifications, but I think I think we can we can definitely say if we don't have inflation now by June, I'd be very surprised. And in fact, we're probably looking at it in April or May, I would say. The most surprising thing about this, I think, is that it isn't being reported. It isn't something until perhaps the last day, the last 24 hours. The fact that the Red Sea, i.e. the entrance and exit to and from the Suez Canal, which accounts for 12% of global maritime trade, is blocked, would have an effect on inflation. This to me seems obvious. In fact, We've just had, during the COVID pandemic and the fact that there was a great deal of disruption to global ports, we've just had a bout where exactly that sort of thing happened, where global shipping costs increased significantly and inflation followed. I'm not saying that you know the two rise and fall in lockstep and there was a direct causal relationship or that there was a... Well, I am saying there was a direct causal relationship. What I'm not saying is that it was the only cause of inflation... But it's quite clear that this sort of thing has an effect. Much higher shipping costs, given the globalized world in which we live and and the fact that maritime trade is of paramount importance to that, is obviously going to increase the price of stuff that we buy in the shops, which is transported by sea. And other stuff will increase in response to that. You know, it's not just all basic goods. you know, a lot of components of other things that are made in, say, Britain are imported by the sea. And it's it's quite shocking from my perspective that the media has been so slow to pick up on this. I mean, these attacks in the Suez Canal and the disruptions in the Suez Canal were taking place before Christmas. And it's only now that people seem to be coming around to it. But, you know, I did find that data very interesting because when you looked at the chart, I think I'm right in saying that the shipping data was shifted forward or, or, or the shipping costs were shifted forward five months. And when that happened, the two lines, shipping costs and inflation, they they they, they rose and fell almost exactly together. You know, it was really quite remarkable. First of all, then, as our resident economist, why haven't people been reporting on this? Like, why on earth has such an important story not been reported on Inflation has been huge news until quite recently when it started to come down and started to become manageable. It was the big story for monetary policy. It was the big story in economics in general was inflation for almost all of last year. Okay, And now we have a situation which is obviously going to cause inflation if it continues for much longer. 
So why hasn't it been reported? And secondly, what level of inflation can do you think we can expect? You know, if you can make such predictions, when can we expect this to to hit? And what can we expect the response to be and, and, and the effects of that response from central banks? Why has everybody been ignoring this? I mean, they haven't on Twitter is the short the short answer. And I don't mean kind of random Twitter people. I mean what they call fin twit, which I hate the term, but it's financial Twitter. There's better and worse people on fin twit, I would say. But, you know, generally speaking, fin twit has now become the kind of ecosystem for generating forward-looking economic, you know, brain droppings or whatever, and and as I said, I mean this the 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 graph that you just referred to and I, I just referenced as well is done by Andres Steno and you know he's got three hundred fifty thousand followers or whatever. Like his graphs go around. He's kind of known as a graph guy. And there were some really good graphs that I think we discussed last week by Jim Bianco again pretty big player you know these people have a lot bigger twitter accounts than you and i do and they have nice llcs and they sell their research for lots of money to wall street firms so the the data is out there i can tell you a minor you know part that i played i guess in the drama this week i highlighted that the times of london was running a story that was highlighting the potential inflationary consequences of what was going on in the red sea pretty prominently and of course, the Times, for those who don't know, is a very, it's 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 a broadsheet, broadsheet. It's it's very kind of like the thing you'd see on the kitchen table. It doesn't really spec. It's a serious paper, but it doesn't specialize in anything. And so them report their wheelhouse isn't really like inflation. Like that's not like they'll report inflation figures, but that's not their wheelhouse. So they should be kind of the last to get that kind of news. But they had a story on it, and I. I quote tweeted it and I just kind of like put up a picture of the front page of the Financial Times. And I said, why is the Times reporting this? And the Financial Times doesn't have it on its front page. And I, you know, added or CC'd or whatever you call it on Twitter, Rana Furahar, who's the editor of the FT. And interestingly, she actually got back and said, you know, I actually did write about this in mid-December. I think the Red Sea situation is extremely serious. And, you know, I said back to her, that's great, but why aren't you guys running it as a news story? It's the it's the uh, economic story of the year. And she didn't get back. And that's fine. I mean, look, I'm not trying to get her to start a civil war inside the Financial Times. But what that shows, and it should be obvious anyway, is that the journalists at places like the Financial Times and Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal, they have access to this data. They are seeing the same things that we're seeing. Are they that are we that much cleverer than them? No, not on this one. I think we can sometimes kind of like get ahead of the game on on geopolitical issues and you know geoeconomic issues on the podcast. But basic kind of supply disruptions? No, that should be there's an ecosystem for that. There's a market for that. There's a lot of people focused on that. So no, we, we shouldn't be able to beat the market on that one. But we are. So what's going on? I mean I don't know. I think it's some combination of the election in November and the fact that this is foreign policy related. So obviously we had the strikes, uh, the US and UK led strikes on the Houthis on Yemen, on the Houthi controlled area in Yemen this week. And I think that this, the papers want to nest the, 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 the disruptions, shipping disruption stories in a kind of a positive headline about strikes. Now, whether the strikes are positive for positive or negative for inflation is a different question. But I think that's basically what they want to do. But I really think what's driving the show behind the scenes 
if I were to get very Freudian and put the put the media on the couch, is 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 just that they really don't want Trump to win. And they know that inflation is it would be a complete nail in the coffin for the Biden White House. I don't think Biden would actually if inflation goes back up, and you know, if we're talking about, as we said, five months down the line, June at the earliest, at the latest, it will have a bout of inflation before the election. I mean, that's it. That's I mean you know, don't even bother running the election. We know who wins. And in fact, I don't think a Democrat could win. I think they could switch out Biden for Newsom or whatever, and it would just be, now. Nah, your party screwed up the economy. We don't want you. Um, and that's already showing in the polls. So I think that's basically what's driving it. Leads to what we're going to see. Well, I think we're, I, I, I want to be conservative. You always want to be conservative when you're making a kind of an economic forecast. At least I, I like to try and be conservative. The reality is this is much worse than the lockdown uh, inflation because it's much more sustained and it's much more concentrated. I think it will be worse than the lockdown inflation. That doesn't mean worse than all the inflation we've seen, remember, because we also had the Ukraine war component inflation going on, feeding in last year. But I think if you isolate the first bout of inflation, and it kind of goes up in a straight line, but there are actually two distinct bouts of inflation contained in there. I think we're going to see something worse than the initial lockdown inflation. Do I want to put a number on it? Not really. I'm an economist. If I do that and I get it wrong, I get in trouble. And if I do it and I get it right, nobody gives me any credit. So I prefer not to do that. We are, at, as I said, 3.4% in the United States, higher in Europe, most of Europe, some places not, definitely higher in the UK. So you're starting from a higher base, right? And you're starting from from inertia already in the system, you know, inflation inertia in a sense. Like people are used to putting prices up, and so I, I do get the sense that, you know, I don't think I don't think we'll we'll go back up to the peak that we saw, whatever it was here in Britain. It was double digits, but we could, and I think we're definitely looking at above five percent, probably above six, maybe seven. So yeah, pretty pretty serious inflation. And then in terms of the reaction, well, the central bank has to react. They'll completely lose credibility if they don't react. They've they've uh, made this move to highlight that they might lower rates uh, moving into the uh, election year. I think it's political. I'll be frank, but they won't be able to do that. They they just won't be able to do that if if there's any sense that inflation will go up because they already burned their credibility missing the inflation last time. So we'll probably get another round of interest rate hikes. And I think we talked about it on the show last week. I don't think the economy can handle it. But yeah, I mean, that's where we are. How long can the media continue to ignore this story? I do worry that they'll permanently bury it, actually. I, I, and they'll just, they'll just be, they'll act surprised when the inflation comes along. And if that is the case, it's sad, actually, because it means that the credibility of some of the best newspapers that the the West, frankly, has, like the Financial Times, that have enormous, enormous soft power roles in the world. People should not underestimate the soft power that the Financial Times gives a country like Britain. And they're destroying their credibility for very, very short-term gains, in a sense, for very, very, or not even gains, just for very short-term, you know, political machinations or even geopolitical machinations. It's very unwise, but but what can you do? We're seeing a lot of capital that the West has accumulated being burned to the ground in the past 18 months. And I think this is part of that story. Yeah, I just want to add to that very briefly that I saw somebody mention on Twitter in direct response to our episode last week 
that the central banks increasing interest rates in response to logistics bottlenecks or maritime bottleneck being shut essentially and therefore shipping costs going up would be not necessarily the ideal tool with which to deal with that cause of inflation like how can the bank of england affect the global cost of shipping by raising interest rates i think that's you know an extremely valid point and i think you know central bankers always have to be cognizant of whether the tools that they have at their disposal are suitable for some of the economic phenomena that they might want to combat. One thing I would respond to with regard to that, and I would like really your input, is my impression is that because last time there was very much a supply chain and logistics component to inflation, and because the central banks said that inflation was going to be transitory, ultimately, the fact that they didn't deal with inflation and said it was going to be transitory, and it, it, it very much wasn't. It was really pretty nasty indeed until the Fed started absolutely hammering up interest rates. I'm not sure they would be able to repeat the same trick again. You know, it, ideally, what they would be able to say, you know, an ideal world, inflation would be low. It would have been consistently low. And what they could say is like, look, this is a one-off thing. It'll go through the pipe, and the worst that will happen is shipping rates will continue to remain elevated forever, but ultimately that won't be a long-term cause of inflation because of the base effect. That would be ideal. But I'm not sure they could do that after the last round where they said it was going to be transitory. There was a logistics component to it, and ultimately it, it really became a very sharp bout of inflation indeed. I think the other point with relation to that is central banks will be very cautious because of what's just happened. And, and, and I think you kind of touched on this before, Central banks will be really careful about inflation expectations starting to bed in at high levels. Essentially, inflation expectations becoming unmoored from their previous low levels and, and, and kind of reconnecting with planet Earth at a much higher level because you know ultimately inflation expectations can become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. People expect inflation to be high, so they start demanding higher pay, wage settlements, companies start increasing prices to cope with that, or companies just start increasing prices to profiteer, knowing that inflation expectations are high and it'll be easy to do. And these expectations in themselves can create or, or, or at least fuel or, or, or catalyze an inflationary cycle. I'm not sure what your view is on, on, on you know, the argument that using monetary policy to deal with global logistics issues is kind of the wrong tool for the wrong job. I mean, I'll give you my honest answer and then my cynical answer. Um, my honest answer is they're probably correct. I think central banks vastly overstate the amount of control they have over inflation. I think if you look at the recent bout of inflation, you can pretty much see the supply chain and then energy issues just feed in. And once those had done their work, inflation dropped. But if we ever said that, then central banks, you know, wouldn't have a job, really. <laughs> I suppose... How would I put it? The their concern is what you said that inflation might get caught into the system. You know, they like that inflation expectations thing. I'm I'm not a big fan of that framing. I, I I prefer to just say a wage price spiral. You know, so people see their their wages erode, their real wages erode through the inflation, and then they bid up the wages, and then the companies offset that wage increase with a price increase. 
And so um, central banks can say, well, we're very worried about that happening. And they'll frame that in terms of expectations. You're absolutely correct. But realistically, I think it's wage price dynamics. And, you know, they say, well, if we don't, if we don't raise the rates and that does happen, then that's really bad and we'll get in trouble and people will say that we're bad at our jobs. And so that's why they raise rates. I think last time a wage price spiral didn't actually take hold in most countries. I think it did at least partially take hold, if not fully take hold in Britain. But I'm not really convinced it did elsewhere. But that's my my personal take. My cynical take is none of this matters. The central bank exists. And so they'll do it. And we gave them that mandate. And that's what they're tasked to do. And they'll do it. And they think, they, they pose as economists, but they're really politicians. They think in terms of credibility, constantly credibility, credibility, credibility. And credibility has almost become more important for them, at least since the Greenspan era in the 90s. Credibility, this idea of credibility, has become more important for central bankers than economics, as far as I'm concerned. And their whole life revolves around watching market reactions to what they do. I mean, I don't want to be cruel about central bankers. I'm sure a lot of them are smart people and everything like that. But it, it seems like a game of like narcissism or something. Like you're looking in a mirror and then another mirror and it's infinite and you're trying to judge you know, what the market thinks and what the politicians think. And, and suddenly you're like, well, you're not really an economist anymore, are you? You're, so, you're, sort, of a, you're sort of a turbocharged politician and you constantly think in terms of what other people are thinking. You're thinking about yourself not from the position of what you think, but rather what other people might think you think or whatever, you know? And you get into this like logic spiral. Look, it's awful. I, I, I'm not a fan. I think the whole central banking system should be re redone, but it is what it is. And so you have to take that kind of navel gazing, narcissistic central bank behavior into account. And that will almost certainly this time, unless the politics gets overwhelming, but I couldn't really imagine that might happen, I suppose. But unless that happens, I, I think they'll, they'll, they're like four mirrors deep kind of version of themselves will get scared that, that they'll lose their quote unquote credibility if they don't jack rates. Lloyd Austin's day off. Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense in the United States, it was checked into hospital, Walter Reed Military Medical Center, Walter Reed, where all the political health-related political scandals that you hear about every year in America happens. He was checked in on December 22nd for a consultation with a medical team due to a prostate cancer diagnosis, and he underwent surgery, and he suffered complications on January 1st and was taken back to hospital now no big deal man gets sick you know fair enough but he didn't tell anyone apparently no one knew he was gone the problem here is that we have to distinguish you often hear about these things and frankly it's not the sort of thing that we cover on multipolarity because it's not interesting in a sense political machinations have never particularly interested me i don't think we talk about them much on the show and we probably wouldn't talk about this except for one thing, there's been actually some quite sophisticated discussion about this. Uh, our friend Malcolm Cheyune did a thread, a very interesting thread about it on Twitter, which if you can go and find it, I would, I would very much so recommend. And he was highlighting, and he's not the only one that's highlighted this, that this wasn't a normal political scandal. This looks like something much, much, uh, it indicates a much uh, deeper dysfunction in D.C., 
I mean, the first the, the the first thing to say about it is Lloyd Austin is technically in charge of the military as Secretary of Defense. He actually needs to kind of sign off on certain things were they to happen. Now, that's fine if he's in hospital. Lloyd Austin is not an indispensable person, despite what he may think. Apparently, he does think that because he hasn't told anybody about his uh, surgery. But no matter what he thinks, he is not an indispensable person. Another person can fill his role, whoever his number two is. But they need to fill that role formally. The way that these appointments work are kind of like pieces on a chessboard. It matters kind of where you are on the chessboard. That determines how you can move. And if you have an absence of a key figure at a, at a crisis point, decisions may not be able to get made properly. And at that point... So at the point where, for example, the boss isn't there, as was the case here, and remember, this is taking place while the Red Sea catastrophe has started to unfold. And although the newspapers may not have been reporting it well, the Pentagon knew all about it, of course, because they were watching it in real time. So what this does, if you have these absences and these dysfunctions, and these, because what it ultimately signals is a lack of communication among the leadership structure. You know, you have the president, then you have his cabinet, and then be- below that, you have kind of the bureaucracy that's supposed to do the bidding. Malcolm kind of analogizes the brain and the muscles, and the muscles is the bureaucracy, and the, and the brain is, you know, at the very top is the president nominally, and then you have the cabinet staff. And of course, part of the brain actually under the cabinet staff is like, you know, NSC, a couple other kind of councils and so on. But if you have, what this highlights is that there's enormous communicative dysfunction within the brain. The the US brain is not currently working properly. And so what will happen in situations like that is that the the body kind of takes on a life of its own. And so, and, and I'm not saying that will just happen because Lloyd Austin is absent. Now he's back, obviously. And that probably won't happen again. But the point is, if he was able to pull off that absence, it probably means that the body is moving on its own anyway. And what that ultimately means is that very, very serious decision-making has probably devolved now to the bureaucracy in a way that probably is very, very unusual. And that's a big problem because what happens there is that the decision-making is ultimately handed to a lower-down person. Now, that lower-down person may be much smarter than the higher-up person, especially on that specific issue because it's their speciality. But they will make decisions about that issue. So say like something kicks off in the Red Sea. Well, there's probably a a Middle Eastern desk at the Pentagon. It's probably more specific than that. They probably have the the little regional desk for the Red Sea. Fine, whatever. Whatever it is, that the decision-making that is made at that desk may be very good decision-making for that region, but it's not stitched into a broader strategy that should be taking place at the brain level, if you see what I mean. And so the concern is that that actually might be how the government is starting to operate. And I, I think that there is in, this hasn't come out of nowhere. There's been a lot of actions that have been very questionable in the last two years, not just in foreign policy, in many aspects of the US government. And it does sort of feel like this, this moment is revealing what actually a lot of people have feared for some time. And just very quickly, I think the way the public has summarized this to themselves is that Joe, Joe Biden's a doddering old codger. 
And Joe Biden is a doddering old codger. But you can have a doddering old codger as long as the rest of the apparatus works. And as long as then the president just becomes a kind of a symbolic figure for which all the kind of, you know, stuff is channeled up and they just kind of, you know, lift his hand and get him to pretend to sign something. That's fine. You can work with that. But that's how the public's summarizing it to itself. But what, what might be being revealed here is that this might not be about whether Joe Biden has dementia or not. That is a secondary issue. The dysfunction that we're seeing out of the out of the Biden administration may be far, far deeper. From the perspective of somebody who tries to pay as little attention as humanly possible to domestic American politics, it seemed obvious for a while that Joe Biden, while in particularly good health for a man in his 80s, he, <laughs> you know, that seems not good enough really to be the sort of president that we've seen in the past, which is somebody who, you know, for good or bad, you know, some have been good, some have been bad, have been in control. Now, it's possible to imagine a situation in which a particular president has a certain managerial style in which they prefer to delegate a huge amount of the decision-making and the actions to subordinates who, you know, in turn delegate because they've got, you know, a large amount of things on their plate. And, 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 and through that, you get quite a distributed, you know, horizontal, I suppose the word would be, management structure. However, you know, it seems at the moment that there's a great deal of infighting within the US political system. And whatever one thinks about the machinations of that political infighting, whatever one thinks about which group is in the ascendancy, which group is on the way down, which group has control over that? Who's winning this argument? Because it, you know, really seems that that's what's happening. What everyone thinks about that, you know, the bottom line is this, and and it really is quite a serious bottom line indeed. The bottom line is this: the man who is in charge of the Pentagon and reports directly to the President of the United States, the Commander in Chief, told nobody that, or that the President himself was not informed for days that this man was completely incapacitated at a time when the U.S. is heavily involved in a military conflict with a nuclear power on Europe's eastern approaches and is also facing a particularly dangerous and escalatory situation in the Middle East. And at that particular time, it seems that the chain of command, the lines of communication within the government have just broken down completely. So whatever the reasons for this, whatever the the machinations, the you, you know the political infighting, the you know the stilettos being sunk through the ribs, you know whatever's going on there, that's the bottom line. That there's been a serious breakdown in lines of communication and chains of command within the U.S. government to the extent that the man who's in charge of the Pentagon, reporting only to the President of the United States in theory just went AWOL for days. The president didn't know. Who knows what the Pentagon knew? I don't know. But this seems like a really serious story. I mean, it's not like we're talking about, you know, 1995 here. I mean, this is a really inflammatory global situation at the moment. And it, it seems quite worrying indeed that this happened at this time. Yeah, just let me give you the concrete example that Malcolm uses in his thread just to really clarify what the issue is here. 
Malcolm argues, and I think correctly, that Operation Prosperity Guardian, the task force that was sent to um, try and sort out the blockade in the Red Sea, which was a failure. I mean, now we've had the the, stri- the airstrikes and so on in Yemen, and that pretty much admits that Operation Prosperity Guardian was a failure. We've known that for a while. We called that a couple of weeks ago. Well, CENTCOM, the uh, central command, uh, US central command, which is in charge of the military in that region, wasn't actually very happy with o- Operation Prosperity Guardian. Again, we don't really have a monopoly on the analysis here. We just have have the advantage at multipolarity podcast of being able to say whatever we want. <laughs> there are plenty of people in the US military that probably know, uh, you know, at a command level who know how when these decisions are complete uh, clown shows, right? So CENCOM wasn't actually very enthusiastic by all accounts of Operation Prosperity Guardian. They pretty much knew what we knew. Malcolm gives the example of the fact that the uh, US Navy uh, withdrew the uh, USS uh, Ford aircraft carrier. And a lot of the kind of um, uh, critical people about, you know, American foreign policy were like, oh, this must be a political pressure tactic on Israel. You know, oh, they're removing the carrier and that there must be kind of like four dimensional chess going on. And Malcolm made the point, and I think he's correct about this. No, that probably didn't happen. What probably actually happened was the Navy used a technical excuse. And the technical excuse was basically that it needed to be refitted or resupplied or something. And they just pulled it out of the region. And why did they do that? Well, they, they they said to check the box, oh, well, it needs repair or it's not fit for the mission. But in reality, they didn't like the mission. They didn't like Operation Prosperity Guardian. They thought it was stupid. And they decided this is a stupid operation. So we're going to just say it needs a resupply. Maybe it does need a resupply. Fine. And we're just going to we're just going to remove it. Now, in a functioning now, I'm not saying they were wrong to do that. In fact, maybe they were right. But it, you know, if you have an overall grand strategy, then you may not, as the leader in that, in that little contained silo, see what's going on in other silos. So it, it can actually be, be very deleterious, especially if we get involved in a more complex war situation, which, by the way, we are in the Red Sea at the moment. The point here is, who do you have to ask to do that? The reality is, in CENTCOM, nobody has to ask. They, they t- tick a bureaucratic box. That's how bureaucracies work. What typically happens when the brain is functioning, the political brain is functioning, is that the White House or the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of Defense will communicate to the White House that this is happening. They'll say, yeah, the CENTCOM have just said that they're pulling the USS Ford out of the Red Sea, and they're saying they're doing it for repair reasons. And the White House and the Department of Secretary of Defense will go, well, I don't really buy that. We know those guys don't want to, aren't keen on Operation Prosperity Guardian. Do you buy this? Does it really need a repair? Can it not stay there for another two weeks? Ah, it can stay there for another two weeks. And then the leadership, the brain, goes and gives gives them a slap on the wrist and says, "Guys, don't try that. Don't try that little bureaucratic box ticking. You get back out there and sail around. And we don't. It's not your. It's not your job to make calls on where the navy should be. You're just supposed to be commanding the navy." And that's how, it, that's how it's supposed to work. That's kind of what Malcolm's saying. Now, imagine if that level of dysfunction is taking place, which it clearly is, and we get something really complex, right, where, the, where a bunch of different departments need to be communicating with each other, even on a military basis, like the Air Force needs to communicate with the Navy. These guys always have different bureaucratic agendas. And if the brain isn't working, things will get very chaotic. If you want to manage a complex situation, any complex situation, from a corporation to a war, you really need top-down control. And the, the strategy needs to be set at the top. And then all of the infighting that you see at the lower levels, you need to be able to identify that and you need to go in and stop it. 
And the scary thing here is that that may not be happening in Washington at the moment. And this might actually explain more of current behavior than, for example, the kind of four-dimensional chess interpretation like, oh, they're pulling back the Ford because they're putting pressure on the Israelis. So I think that's really interesting in general. If you're watching, I'm not saying this is always the case, exclusively the case. Maybe the four-dimensional chess stuff is taking place sometimes. But when you're watching things develop in the coming year, and it's going to be a very chaotic year, don't discount the fact that there may just be extreme dysfunction behind the scenes because it's increasingly feeling like that. The Magnificent 17. Bloomberg reported a very interesting story about China, that China last year upgraded its diplomatic relations with a record 17 different countries and regions. Now, this is a pretty important story, and it's a pretty important story to get to grips with because as the world moves towards multipolarity, as the world moves towards increased security competition, it's stories like this which give us a glimpse of the direction which China is moving and the way that the world is kind of bifurcating into different camps. So just in a little bit more detail, China improved, upgraded, I should say, relations with 17 countries. So very quickly, they were in Asia, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Turkmenistan, Singapore, Georgia, and Timor-Leste. In Africa, Gabon, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Benin, Zambia, and Ethiopia. In the Middle East, Palestine, and Syria. In the Americas, Venezuela, Colombia, Uruguay, and Nicaragua. And in the South Pacific, the Solomon Islands. You'll notice there that all of these are emerging markets. They're developing countries. If we look at some of the trade data, we, we had a, a podcast on this last year where you went into some of the Chinese trade data and how China has switched from being an export-oriented economy toward the developed world, i.e. Europe and Americas and places like Japan, South Korea, and Australia. It's moving now increasingly toward being an export-oriented economy toward the developing world places like Africa, places like emerging Asia, places like South America. And we're seeing exactly this, exactly this, in the diplomatic efforts they're making. So if you look at places like Kyrgyzstan and Turkmenistan, they sit on important real estate in Central Asia for logistics and the so-called New Silk Road and the Belt and Road Initiative. Singapore, of course, is a crucial financial hub, and it also sits on a uh, it, it also controls the Strait of Malacca, which, like Suez, is a crucial maritime choke point. In Africa, countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo and Zambia are really important in terms of raw materials for 21st century in, uh, industries like cobalt uh, and lithium. Then, of course, in the Middle East, we've covered extensively China's efforts. Now, China is indeed the biggest importer of oil from the Middle East. We've covered extensively China's efforts to build a peace and be the broker of security and peace within the Middle East. And of course, they're improving relations with Syria there. Solomon Islands might seem a little bit strange, but it's a crucial bit of maritime real estate in the South Pacific. So, you know, I think this is a really fascinating story. It's not something that, you know, is going to explode the world. It's not like a big shock or anything. But what it is, it's another little piece of a jigsaw 
that we've already got a good idea about what the picture is going to look like at the end of it. And we've just slipped another piece of that jigsaw in. And we're seeing how China really is focusing on the on, on building alliances, building diplomatic relations, economic relations, and trade relations with developing countries around the world, either as export markets, either as logistical real estate, or as places to secure the raw materials and food that they need to fuel their economy. Yeah, a few other things that stood out in the story. The Solomon Islands and Nicaragua actually changed their diplomatic relations from Taiwan to Beijing. I mean, they were basically kind of allied with Taiwan, allied insofar as they recognized Taiwan as a country, and they switched to Beijing. So that's kind of kind of a big deal, two countries not recognizing Taiwan anymore. And of course, very few countries do recognize Taiwan. And as you just pointed out, Solomon Islands, although it sounds obscure, is in the South Pacific. So their recognition of Taiwan carries a little bit more weight with it. Sorry to interrupt, but Nicaragua also is proximate to the Panama Canal, of course. So that's another little bit of important real estate. And it was one of the few countries in South America who weren't closely allied with China in terms of recognition of uh, Taiwan. The second thing I'd I'd point out from the article, just because I think it's interesting, and I think our listeners might find it interesting, Beijing has different labels for different bilateral relationships. They're very Chinese labels. So for example, for Pakistan, Belarus, and Venezuela, it uses all-weather strategic partnership. And so that's like an ironclad kind of partnership, basically a you know, Venezuela, Belarus are, are, you know, solid, like they'll, unless there's a a change of government there, they're going to be with China till the bitter end. The US is described as a a quote unquote, new type major power relation, which is (laughs) kind of amusing. More polite, actually, I'd say more polite than we in the West describe China. I do like Chinese manners sometimes. Ties with Singapore were formally upgraded to an all round high quality and forward looking partnership. (laughs) It's very optimistic. I quite like that. The last thing that stands out from it is the article actually notes that despite this flurry of uh, diplomatic activity, uh, Xi Jinping has been at home in his slippers. He hasn't been doing much traveling. Uh, His his travel schedule has dropped significantly since the lockdown, since 2020. And yet all of these relationships are taking place. Well, why is that? Well, obviously you you can use your noggin on that one. He's not going elsewhere. People are coming to China. Now, that may seem like a pretty minor point, but I'm not sure if it is. It's attractive when a leader of a powerful country goes out to less powerful countries. Um, US presidents turning up now in Europe isn't really the event that it used to be, I would say. But um, in Ireland, for example, the visitation of uh, John, John F. Kennedy in the 1960s was an enormous event for the country. And the United States, when the president would go abroad, uh, used to have enormous cachet. China probably has something similar with with Xi Jinping. But that's one method of soft power. What I would say is a much more established, established is probably the word, method of soft power is saying, come to my court. Because when you say, come to my court, you're really saying, come here and let's make deals. And so the world goes to China to make deals. And of course, the country that's done that up until now has been the United States. Not in the same way as China's doing it currently. I would say China's playing the game a little bit better than the, than the Americans have since 1991, 
the Americans used to be very good at good at this game in the post-war era. But it's quite similar. Washington, D.C. is a kind of a, if listeners want to go back and listen to our, our episode with Carlos Roa, Washington, D.C. is effectively an imperial capital in the sense that it's where people from all over the world come together to, to carve up the world, to carve up the, the global deals and so on. Now, it's gotten to the point in America where it's become, frankly, corrupting and dysfunctional. But if you manage that properly, if it's not a scrum, D.C. has become a scrum, sadly, but if it's not a scrum and it's more like you attend the emperor's court and you ask for favors, that's a very powerful relationship. And that feels to me from reading the article like the model that the Chinese are taking, which is very historically Chinese. The last thing I'd say is, although America used to be far better at managing this, I think probably between 1945 and maybe 1991, actually, probably, they never managed it quite like that. You, you did sort of go to the court of the court of the emperor, but you never really went to the court of the emperor. It was still a little bit of a scrum that was managed from the top. The court of the emperor model is the classic historical one, and it strikes me as very powerful, and it's it's got a lot of powerful symbolism to it. And if you, if you understand that, and you go and you look at the photographs and so on of foreign leaders visiting China, I think they'll make a lot more sense to you, and the aesthetics will be immediately quite striking. Yeah, I just want to very briefly add to that, Philip, that uh, Xi last year hosted 70, 70 uh, leaders from the global south in top-level diplomatic relations. So excluding all of the visits that he dealt with from the Western world and the developed world, if you like, he had 70 top-level diplomatic discussions or top-level diplomatic visits to Beijing to engage in negotiations, diplomacy, whatever, last year. That is a really incredible pace that the Chinese are setting. And I think it's important to note that because it shows just how hard they're working and the sort of diplomatic action that we're going to see increasingly as the multipolar world develops. Countries are engaged in extremely serious security competition at the moment. And the pace of diplomacy and the horse trading that goes on in diplomacy and the skill of the diplomats themselves will be raised from here. And we're already seeing that with China. <laughs>